Okay, we shall continue our sermon sessions in the Gospel of Luke, and we enter in chapter 3 in regards to John, commonly known as the Baptist, the Immerser. And uh, we will begin in verse 1 and following, as to the information of inspired language, here now revealed in the Holy Writ, and that is most certainly wonderful uh, for us to have this venue in which we can uh, certainly uh, look into this information, the information of life, you see, and uh, the importance therein. Chapter 3 Verse 1 says, and I quote, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitus, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood, verse 2, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, I find it interesting, my dear friends, before we move forward, how the Holy Spirit, with the witnessed and recorded account, of course, of the good news of the Christ, Luke, the author, his gospel to the account, that it was fitting for the reader to recognize the socio-political condition of the first century in which the uh, witnessed account of the Christ would be found. It's interesting because through this detailed information, Paul, of course, being a historian, and phys uh, Paul, Luke, being a historian and physician to this end, is detailed in the current politics of the age. And that gives us insight, of course, in the tyranny or the oppression and the violent nature of these here political powers of the first century and how believers and soon to become Christians were, of course, to navigate and persevere through challenging days of these here powers, specific by name, would you know. And it is if you will, important for us in our faith to recognize the detail of his pen as he writes. Friends, this is not a fable or a myth. These individuals are also recorded in secular history and archaeology and various other scientific methods, of course, reveal the fact of these here names and this here time. It's important that we know we are reading Factual documents. Factual documents. Recorded in history here now 
in the inspired writ and also in the secular world. And it's organized that way to put us in a geographical location to the gospel at hand. In the first century, the word of God came to John. Friends, it had been centuries. It had been centuries. The intertestamental period from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament. 400 years in which God had not directly divinely intervened with mankind. And so the age of what would be supernatural in miraculous occurrence had not taken place among mankind walking with them 400 years. And so there had been a great deal of customs and traditions and various tradi uh, uh, interpretations and uh, a great deal of um, providence throughout the ages leading to this moment. And this moment, of course, God saw fit as opportune, the perfect time for the Son of Man to walk among humanity. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Why is that significant? Because the word of God, my dear friends, is the source power and authority for you and I to understand the gospel and to therein obey the gospel and live according to the mercy and grace of its uh, freedom and privilege, instruction, justice, law, all those wonderful things. The word of God came to John. This is a divine intervention, God uh, 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 speaking to John, John to be the vocal vessel to produce the information given to him by a higher power. This does not come from the whims of mankind's measurement or unrighteous judgments. In other words, John just didn't come up with stuff. God gave him this information. Now you and I today... We don't receive the word in the same measurement that John did in the first century. It was for a purpose to confirm. And you and I today, of course, have the word of God right here. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Again, all to the detail, precise. What is happening? What is taking place? Where it is happening and taking place? And to whom? And all this Wonderful, elaborate information. And, the, and, and he, verse 3, came into all the district around the Jordan, proclaiming, preaching, a baptism, an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So here is John. John, commonly known as the Baptist. Why? Because he would immerse people. That was his profession, if you will the task and ministry of his office. He would immerse people in water. Why? It was for the forgiveness of their sins. What kind of a baptism? The baptism of repentance. Well, where was the power? It was looking towards the future when Jesus the Christ would fulfill the cross. And so here is John going into all these districts, proclaiming an immersion, 
a full burial in water, and it is the baptism of repentance, and the purpose they were going down into the water was for the forgiveness of their sins. This by the baptism of repentance. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, verse 4 I'm reading, <coughs> as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, quoting now, it says, The voice of one... This one, of course, being John, commonly known as the Baptist, John the Baptist, John the Immerser. The one, or the voice of John, crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. John to his conduit as one to plow the road forward for the Christ to come after him. One who is greater than he is coming. He's plowing the road ahead of him prior as his task and fulfillment. The word of God is with him. He is speaking the word of God. He is proclaiming the word of God. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The baptism is the baptism of repentance. It is John's given instruction from on high. And this, of course, would make ready the people for one who is of a higher power. The Christ. It is important that we follow the train of thought within the context, and this is how we learn, indeed, what the author of the Bible intends for us to receive in our hearts and minds. So he, John, in verse 7, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you? To flee from the wrath to come. <laughs> John wouldn't have a job in a great many churches today, I don't think. He's not very nice, is he? Very offensive. He's speaking to religious people of all doubt. You mean you it would we would be quick to, to be amen with John if he'd be speaking to those heathens out there, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the godless people. Oh yeah, John, you tell him. You tell those brood of vipers, John, be like, no, 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 you, you must be misunderstanding me. I'm not talking to the Roman powers. I'm not speaking to the Gentiles, the Greeks, the pagans, the heathens. They are lost. Of course they are. No, no, I'm speaking to the believers who think they're saved and they really ain't. Oh, now that's offensive. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Oh, well, now wait a minute, John. I mean, they are going to get baptized. They obviously believe. Now, is that the thing to... Now, imagine if... The... Just imagine it. Here you are. You want to follow Jesus. You love Jesus. You want to be baptized. Why, well, you brood of vipers? It seems so... I don't know. Out of its proper context for him to... Now listen, there's history here. There's history, and John knows the history of the, of the people. 
and how far they've gone from God in their hearts. Oh, their lips, they speak a great deal about God. Oh, we believe in God. We love God. We follow God. We go to church every Sunday. But their hearts are far away from him. He's going to the root cause with the axe, to the root tradition. You'll see. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Well, where did John receive his information to proclaim the information he is speaking? I mean, where did that, or is it just John got bored one day and just wanted to start screaming at folks out there in the community? <laughs> well, no. God is speaking through John. So the information that John is speaking to the people comes from a higher power. Just like the words we are reading here, it's not just some man got bored one day and wrote down this information. It is the penmanship of the Holy Spirit. Did a man write it? Of course, a man inspired by God to write this information. You brood of vipers, deceivers, slithering snakes, deceivers, cunning you are. Who warned you? To flee from the wrath to come. There is a judgment coming. It's wrath. God and his wrath is just. And it's coming and there's judgment. And you snakes and you deceivers, you wouldn't have known none of it if it weren't for God. That is the point. You didn't receive this information to flee God's judgment, his wrath, his punishment, because you just came up with the, with the, idea, with the idea. No, you heard it because it's the word of God proclaimed and you were pierced into obedience. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Why is that important? Because it provides an outward action of an inward change. Remember a few weeks ago in our study class, the account witnessed and recorded of two sons. His father is commanding his sons to go out and work for him. One of the sons says, oh yeah, I'll go ahead and do that for you, dad. I'll work for you. But he never goes and works. And the other son says, I ain't going to do that. No way. I ain't got no time for that. I'm not going to go working in your field. But then he repents, which is a change of mind. So he changes his mind about what just happened there, him telling his dad he can't go, he ain't going to go, to now, you know what? My dad's worked hard all his life. He's given me all blessings I could imagine in the household. I mean, I'm, I'm obligated to respect him and honor him. I need to go. So what was the fruit of his repentance? He went and worked for his father. What is John saying? Oh, it's all good. It's all good that you're coming to the waters of baptism to receive the forgiveness of your sins. But you're going to have to produce something. You're going to have to work out your salvation. You're going to have to show God that you're willing to now go away from what was error to now do what is right and proper. 
No longer be cunning brutes. No longer be these slithering snakes. No longer be deceivers, religious deceivers. Change. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now what does that mean? What is he saying? Pay attention. Learn this. He says you need to produce fruits of repentance. So it's one thing to say, God, I'm sorry. I've been believing wrong. I've been thinking wrong. I've been speaking wrong. I've been living wrong. I want to change my life around. I don't want to live wrong anymore. I don't want to do bad things anymore. I don't want to live in sin anymore. I don't want to follow false religious worldviews anymore or false religious rituals and traditions and shrines and all kinds of stuff. I want, to, I want to change my mind. I want to do what's right. And what has pierced me to do that is the information of the Scriptures, the Word of God. And I want to change. <coughs> well, what are you going to produce? Well, you become faithful, of course. If you were to stop just at, I want to change, but actually don't produce change, you... You claim your religious affiliation like in the first century. The Jewish mind could have said, I don't need to change. I have lineage to Abraham. Do you follow? I don't need to change because of my past religious affiliations and beliefs and traditions. God is saying, I can make a faithful believer whose lineage go back to the stones and the rocks of the earth. You cling to the ancestral lineage of your people, your forefathers in Abraham, but that's not what saves you. It's not what saves you. We, as mankind, tend to think that everything else but Jesus is what saves us. Well, I went to church. I should be saved. No. No, that's not how... No, sitting here doesn't save you. It really doesn't. It's a good thing you're sitting here. But you could be sitting here with the wrong heart. And you could think that you are being saved by other elements, if you will. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. We don't need to change. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, verse 9, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, John, John's not messing around. He's, 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 he's quite poignant in the way he speaks. And what he is saying comes from God. So it's as if God is saying that to the people. 
his people, religious people, the Jewish people. Here they are coming to John, recognizing him in the things he is proclaiming as a prophet. So we're going to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And John's telling him it's more than that. Yes, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. But what worth is it if you don't keep that grace? If you don't produce fruits of your change? I assure you, many people get wet. Many people get wet. You can go on the internet and find all kinds of people getting wet every week. I got wet. I got baptized. I got wet. Yeah, but you didn't get saved, though. You didn't get saved, though. You got wet. There's a difference. You need to produce a change in your heart, in your mind, in your lifestyle, in the way you see things. It takes time. But you have to at least have the humble beginning to seek that path. The Word of God was an axe that was going to cut down the trees of tradition in <laughs> Judaism and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and members of the political powers in the Sanhedrin. All of it. Here was God coming with the axe. You know, their ancestral roots were deep. Centuries going back to Abraham. They had all of those documents in the temple. The Jewish people lived to the conversation of one's ancestral family tree. This was their everything. They'd spend days and weeks and months and years just talking about their ancestry. And here's John with the word of God saying, we're going to cut that down. In similar principle, the Word of God today, speaking to the 2-point-some billion individuals who profess to be Christians on this earth, that you're lost. And your traditions and what you think you, have, you are and who you are is being cut. You've created your own personal gods and Jesuses, cutting that tradition down. Are you going to be willing to change and produce? And look at the language he utilizes. Fruits. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down. Friends, we are called to be in Christ and to produce. All of us here must have task and office to produce. What do we do? Do we practice benevolence? Are we kind? Are we compassionate? Can we discern the difference between right and wrong? Do we evangelize? Do we live our life in a Christian way with integrity that is attractive to those around us? Do we understand and hold dear to the uniqueness of the church of our Lord and Master? To the uniqueness of the plan of salvation in which His blood washes our sins away? To the necessity of church discipline and organization with elders and deacons. To the uniqueness of our worship and how it is commanded in the word of God. If you were known as a thief or a gossip or a murderer or a sexual deviant. 
if you repent from that, it means you've changed your mind knowing that that is evil, that is lawless, that is sinful. And I no longer want to live that way and do those things. Okay, so now here you are as a person who says, I no longer want to do those sinful things and live in those sinful ways. Now what? Well, now you must fill that void with something good. So instead of living with lies, now start living with the truth and speaking the truth. Learn to love your fellow brethren. Learn to be kind to one another. Seek ways that you can encourage your brothers and sisters. Seek ways in which we can continue to cultivate friendship. If you stop doing a bad thing, start doing a good thing. Some Christians have the idea that, well, what? I've stopped doing bad things. Yeah, but you've never started doing good things. Most have the idle idea that I've been saved by Jesus. I'm not a bad person because bad person are like murderers and stuff. I don't do that. So I'm okay now. It's so much more than that. You're robbing yourself from the blessing of actually starting to do something. And I, I am so encouraged with the East Coast congregation because I see all of us, every member here who has stopped believing or doing bad things, immersed into Christ, now have started to do good things. And that is necessary. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, what does that look like? What's the practical application to it? Friends, verse 10 begins, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? I mean, Obviously, what we thought we were doing is not it. So what is it that we need to do? And that is the question we should always ask if we are humble. And he would answer and say to them in verse 11, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Where is he going to go with all of this? I assure you. Pay attention. He's going to the root cause of the problem. Where? The heart of man. Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter 6, 7, 5, 6, 7, I think. Sermon on the Mount. The attitudes in which we should behave as. All of it has to do with the root cause of man's heart. Why are you here this morning? What's there? Once the root of the cause is remedied, then all things afterwards are humbly practiced. So they would start to, now they, would, now they could start to do what is right, because the heart is right. So there needs to be an equality, a sense of 
fellowship with your neighbor. If you have an if you have food in abundance, but your neighbor next to you is starving to death, it is our Christian duty to go over there and be like, "Hey man, how's it going? Not well. Yeah, you don't look well. Well, I lost my job and it, it, it's been going bad and I uh, I feel embarrassed. Don't feel embarrassed. You're blessing me with the opportunity to help. Man, I got all kinds of food over here. If one of you can't pay the mortgage, can't pay the rent, can't eat food this week, can't clothe, can't... Well, some of us maybe have enough to help out. The heart of man, if it's corrupt, is not going to see the inside of this humility and the blessing and joy to give. So here's John telling us we're a brood of vipers. And of course, he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders of the day there. And so that the crowds would be paying attention to how John is speaking to their religious leaders. He's saying, hey, listen, you need to change. You want to produce fruits of repentance? Yeah, tell us what we need to do. Well, I'm telling you. He who answered him says, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Okay, so there the crowd hears this answer. That gives them some practical application. Oh, wow. Okay. Most certainly in a time of desperation as well. Not a great many of them had much to give anyways, but they were to give some if they had enough of it. And the tax collectors now, of course, in verse 12, they come to be baptized, to have, the sins, have their sins washed away. And they said to John, well, teacher, what shall we do? What about us? We're tax collectors. We're... Man, you know, they, it, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. No one likes tax collectors. All right, we don't like taxes today. They didn't like taxes back then. And they were doing the same thing back then that they're doing today. What do you think that is? Taxing us to death. Why? Because they're corrupt. You drove here. Were you driving on marble roads? Or were you driving on the moon with all kinds of craters all over the place? You've been to the local hospital. You've seen what's going on with our health care. What's going on there? What about our education? You know it as well as I. So what's the problem? Corrupt politicians and powers. They get greedy. And they rob people through taxation. So I assure you, they didn't like that happening to them in the first century as much as we don't like it now. But what is God telling the tax collectors, the one who are actually going out there and robbing the folks? You want to know what a fruit of you want to know a fruit of repentance? You know what that looks like? Yeah, tell us, teacher. Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Oh, that would change everything. Imagine that. You work hard all week. 40, 50, 60 hours. And you get your paycheck, and you only need to give five, ten bucks to the government. Wow, you actually get to keep your hard-earned money. So the Word of God is telling the tax collectors, don't swindle, don't extort, don't take more than is necessary to patch the road up. And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Now some soldiers. So we got crowds coming. We had task, task collectors coming. Now we got soldiers. 
And they were questioning him, saying, and what about us? I mean, our duty is to enforce law and to go to war and to, you know, be violent. What shall we do? And so he says to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Ever seen a corrupt cop? Man, they don't pay me enough. Here comes crime in the neighborhood and the crime says to the police officer, hey man, listen, if you just don't look at what we're doing, we'll give you $10,000 a month. And the officer says, $10,000 a month just to leave these people alone, these criminals alone? Yeah. Or, knock on the door, here's the law, we're the law. You guys are accused of not paying your taxes, or not doing this, or not doing that, so you owe us all this kind of money. Well, you know you've paid your taxes. You know you've done what you're supposed to. You know what's going on is corrupt, but what are you going to do? Fight the law? I fought the law, and the law won. Well, what are you going to do? He's telling them, don't do that. Don't, don't go do that. Be fair. Be upright. Have integrity. Treat your fellow neighbor as you would love to be treated. It's the golden rule. So what is the fruit of change that is necessary for us? It starts in the heart. Why are you here? Where is your commitment? Where is your loyalty? What is your priority in life? If it's nothing but Christ and His people faithful in His fold, then, I mean, you're just, why are you here? We love you. But you may not be understanding what this is all about. And if you want to learn, that's okay. But if you've got another kind of priority, this ain't work. I mean, did, what do you... Again, so encouraging that this congregation is faithful and that all of us want to learn. All of us want to be together. All of us want to know how this applies in our lives. Well, how does it apply to your life? What about when you're at school? What about when you're at work? What about with your neighbors? What about with your friends and family? Do you understand the fruits of repentance that are necessary? His grace, His mercy, look at how much He loves us and what He has done for us, laying down His life and how kind and compassionate He's been to us and how He spoke the truth to us. Let's use Jesus as our example to how to live. So the soldiers are told what it is they need to do. Now while the people, in verse 15, were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering if their hearts, in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Because remember, these people were born and raised within the, the, the covenant of Judaism and the old law. And they've been learning the Old Testament and reading of the prophecies of a coming Messiah. And so they asked themselves, is this guy it? Like, is he the Christ? The Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. Is he it? Well, John answers them and says to them all in verse 16, As for me, you see, I'm not the Christ is what he's going to say. As for me, I immerse you, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I. 
and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now John is speaking in prophecy. He is speaking of the age in which the twelve apostles will receive the miraculous endowment of the Holy Spirit, where we read all of that come to fulfillment in Acts chapter 1, when they stood up among the people on the day of Pentecost. The baptism, of course, of fire was eternal punishment and judgment to the religious leaders of the day. He is saying, I don't have the power to save you, or to condemn you. All I have is water. But there is one coming after me. Who is the Christ. And he will have the power. To save you. Or to condemn you. And through him. In that water. You will find salvation. We keep reading. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand. To thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire again it's a prophecy of judgment it's a prophecy of the word of god that was coming miraculously in the 12 apostles and it was speaking of eternal punishment and judgment to all who would be against it Against the word of God. The religious leaders of the day. Fire and the word of God. So with many other exhortations in verse 18, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John, ultimately, of course, in the recorded account here by Luke's pen, John proclaimed the good news by exposing error and exposing sin, and he did so even with Roman officials and politicians in power. He basically told Herod in public that he's not allowed to have his brother Philip's wife because that's adultery. And of course, ultimately, he would have his head on a platter because of that. We're going to finish the account with verse 21 and 22, and that will come to a conclusion for our session this worship hour. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, now remember, you must pay attention. The baptism here is the baptism of John. It's for the forgiveness of sins because it's the baptism of repentance. It was in water. You went down into the water, fully buried down into the water, and you came up out of the water forgiven of your sins. Why? How? Because it was the baptism of forgiveness looking forward to the baptism of the Christ. And so now here, when all the people were baptized in verse 21, Jesus was also baptized. Now wait a minute. Jesus didn't did Jesus have sins to be forgiven of? Matthew would tell us why Jesus was baptized. 
Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? To obey the law. What is the law? You need to go through that baptism. He's setting forth the importance and necessity of baptism in his submission to his Father in heaven. Though he is perfect and has no sin. That's how important that is. And that's why there were people lining up to be baptized. We must take into consideration the context that Christ has not yet died and gone to the cross. Gone to the cross and died. He's still on this earth walking. And so when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit, so that's God, descended upon Jesus, which is God, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, which is God, says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. God in three persons here, right? You see it right there in the text. God in three persons, right there. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is it that the Father only said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased, after Jesus was baptized? That's important information you need to ask. Why is that? Why is it the case... That in the baptism that you and I have been commanded to obey, which began in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that is the baptism of the Great Commission, why is it that in every account of conversion in the book of Acts, rejoicing only took place after baptism? Because, of course, friends, if you are an honest student of the Scriptures, you'll come to recognize that being immersed, plunged, dipped, submerged... <clears throat> baptized is where God saves you. It's not because water saves you. Water don't save you. I can't save you. If I help you go down into the water, I'm not the one saving you. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. That's how important it is. And it was so important that even a perfect man, the Son of Man, God on earth, obeyed His Father in heaven and was baptized. And because He was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down, and his Father in heaven spoke a word. You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. So we wrap this up. The account of John is in view of this witnessed and recorded word, Luke's Gospel. John comes in speaking the word of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus would say the same thing, recorded first words in Matthew chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Religious people, believers in God, needed to repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. In the age in which you and I live, which is the age of the Messiah, after the Christ's fulfillment on the cross, death, burial, resurrection, witness, and ascension, you and I live after the cross. These people we're reading about, they live before the cross. You and I live after the cross. We are commanded the same. Do we believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, we do. Are we willing to confess him as our Lord and Master? Yes, we are. Are we willing to change? Are we willing to, to repent? Are we willing to stop living in sin, stop believing false religious things? Are we willing to change? Yes. Even more so, are you willing to start doing what is right? Yes. Then you qualify. Qualify? You qualify to be saved by Jesus Christ. We'll call on His name, 
as you are being immersed into water, baptized, calling on the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just like you see right there in verse 22, you have the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. We're going to call on His name, and you'll be immersed into water. And when you come up out of the water, you'll be born again, forgiven of your sins, and added to His church. There is no other way for salvation but through Christ. And this indeed, sadly, is what the world out there is missing, missing the mark. That will conclude this portion of Scripture. Next week we shall, Lord willing, go into chapter 4. A quick mention, of course, of the genealogy will be made. But if anyone here, of course, needs to uh, obey the gospel or have questions or concerns in regards to the gospel, please come see us afterwards. We'll be more than happy to assist as we can. Let's move forward now with a song. <laughs>